You make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing, it seemed, in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, everybody. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast, and I'm here today with my special guest, Rich Palarico. He's a 20, over 20 year WGA member and two time show captain who also served as strike captain during the 2007 2008 strike. He's a Peabody award winning and four time Emmy nominated writer and producer, best known for his work on Key and Peel. Rich wrote and produced on shows like Mad TV, Review, Saturday Night Live, and The Tonight Show. Rich is an alum of Chicago's Second City. Rich appeared in featured roles on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Mad TV, and the feature film High Fidelity, numerous TV ads, including A&W Root Beer's classic commercial, Mr. Dumas. And you can also find him at richtalarico.com. Rich, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Kaya. Thanks for having me. And hello, everyone. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. I love talking to writers. I especially have a sweet spot in my heart for comedy writers. So it's an absolute delight that you're here. Well, thank you. Thank you. We, we appreciate uh, being able to make you laugh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Oh, my God. You're kidding. Like, especially the late night shows, you know, they're like my lifeline to the news of the world because I can't watch the news anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's a great buffer. Whatsoever. Yeah. Um, well, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your background because it's so interesting. And I was on your website, I was looking at your bio and it sounds like you even took improv classes with Colbert. Yeah. My first improv teacher was Stephen Colbert in Chicago. I don't know whatever happened to that guy, but he was, was that so... before he, like, was that when he had the baby? Was he starving in those days or? <laughs> oh, that, that was a bit from, uh, you're referring to his audition for the Dana Carvey. Show. I am. <laughs> he basically holds up his baby. Yeah. And says, you know, I got to feed this baby. Uh, yeah, it was probably even a few years before that because uh, I did study with Colbert and eventually worked at Second City. And, and one of the my fellow students, a guy named Bill Cott, uh, auditioned for Dana Carvey and got it. And so he was like off to go work with our teachers, Carell and Colbert and, you know, um, pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, it was back in the 1900s. I started doing improv and sketch in Chicago and uh, came up through Improv Olympic in Second City. Are you from Chicago? Originally from New York State, a very small town in the middle of uh, New York State. Uh, very rural area, but uh, moved to Chicago right after high school and started taking improv class. And that kind of was my college experience. Was What drew you into it? What drew you into comedy? What drew you to improv? Well, you know, it was really the school plays in high school um, got me going. I wasn't really an athlete. 
uh, wasn't very academic and uh, finally found something that I was like, well, this, this is something I'm very interested in and did some plays and I did some stand-up comedy. Some guys in my school had a band and they asked me to do like a few jokes before one of their shows. And then I went to my art teacher, a guy named Tellerico, although he spells it differently than me. And he was my art teacher and he owned a nightclub. Very cool guy. And I asked him if I could do stand-up at his nightclub. You know, I'm 16. And he's like, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. And he like let me get up and introduce bands and tell jokes. And uh, eventually I was informed by my then girlfriend and you know just out of high school and she told me about some short film they were making in utica new york and the guy that was making the film was from chicago or had worked in chicago and he told me about second city i didn't really know anything about them at that point and i called them they sent me a brochure and within a month or so i'd moved to chicago and kind of didn't look back oh my god you just got onto your path like so young I i'm envious you know, it has its pluses and minuses for sure. You know, I, like I said, that was my college experience. So I did miss that. But um, no, I'm very glad I started when I did. It just was surrounded by, you know, so many amazing folks. And it was really a very special time too. you know, to be doing improv, you know, in Chicago at that time was pretty great, too. How'd you become a late night writer? Kind of reluctantly, you know, because I was originally an actor. So for the first 10 years I was living in Chicago, I was going on auditions, I was getting small TV and film roles, some commercials, and I was doing Second City. And in 1997, we all submitted some writing packets to SNL. Um, and I got a call that I was going to get flown out there to uh, go meet with them about being an apprentice writer, a, a new writer. And at that point, I had worked so hard to get into Second City, and I hadn't done the main stage at Second City. Mm. And I really didn't even know if I had that main stage job, but I turned down SNL in 97 because I was like, I don't want to be a writer. I want to be an actor, and I really want to finish Second City. I, you know, I just wanted to go through the whole thing. I wanted to do the main stage. I ended up doing five, four or five you know, main stage shows and a, a show on the ETC stage, which is their kind of uh, experimental theater company. Yeah, I yeah, and I did the national tour there. So it was great. And then after uh, Second City was over, um, I was doing a, a parody of Fiddler on the Roof with a guy named TJ Shanoff in Chicago. And we'd written this like parody of Fiddler on the Roof and it was this big hit. And Mad TV came that summer of 2001 to see that show, probably at the request of Stephanie Weir, my good improv buddy and sketch comedy friend. And she was working on Mad TV at the time as an actor. And she told Dick Blasucci, who was the writer producer for SCTV and was the showrunner at the time of Mad. And they came and saw me in this Fiddler on the Roof show. And they pretty much asked me to pitch them a few ideas. I met with some of the producers and then they offered me a job. And at that point I said, well, you know, I'm, I kind of did everything I wanted to do in Chicago. And this is a free trip to LA. And Mad was, you know, doing okay. It was pretty popular. And I thought this is a good, you know, if I'm going to do some TV writing, this I could do a lot worse. I had friends on the show, and it just seemed like a really easy trip to L.A. And I went in the summer, so I didn't have to see winter again, because I grew up, you know, in very cold New York winters, and then I had about 10 Chicago winters. So I've earned my, my winter merit badges. You earn your spot in the sun. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that was it. I did Mad for three seasons. I got offered SNL again. After that, I did go take it as a writer. I did that for two seasons. Lasted longer than Larry David. I hope that translates. <laughs> and then I went back to Mad for like part of two different seasons. 
and uh, did a few other shows you probably never heard of. And then I did The Tonight Show and then Key and Peele and then a few other shows. Who was hosted The Tonight Show when you were writing for them? Jay Leno had just taken it back and there couldn't have been less goodwill for Jay Leno in, in the world. And that was a very interesting time to go in there. But I you know, loved The Tonight Show's staff very much. And some of these guys I'm still in touch with. And I worked there, you know, in 2010. So, I mean, this is, you know, 12 years later, I'm still in touch with a lot of the writers. And uh, one of the editors is one of my really good friends now. So I'm, I'm so grateful I did that. And it wasn't really my thing. I, you know, I had fun. I got some monologue jokes on and I got some pieces in the show. But you know, really what I do best, I think, is, you know, sketch comedy between human beings, not with even a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance, just a lot of Key and peel type evergreen, you know, situational sketch comic comedy. Yeah, love it. Love it. Well, let me ask you a question from me personally, because I'm always just curious about this. How are we doing in staffing more women inside The Tonight Show or inside any of the late night shows? When you say we, do you mean you and me personally? I we no. <laughs> I well, I, I've never been in a position to staff anybody, um, but if I were, of course, I would want you know a representative room. And I I hear what you're saying. I don't think these rooms are necessarily representative. Although now things are much different. I don't know how they are on the Tonight Show. Like I said, I haven't been there in a dozen years. Is it getting better? I guess that's really the the heart. But, you of know, that. I I suppose we're always you know making things more equitable hopefully and uh you know you just read that story about the lady from um jurassic park who said she got you know many millions of dollars less than her co- her male co-star yeah you know so i think are we doing better it's hard to say i think you know i have never been like no i don't want to uh, this group or that group in the room and um yeah, I've, I've not been in a position where I was staffing a room myself, but if I were, I would I would agree with you. I would want to look for balance. And, you know, I came from improv in Chicago, and one of my very first improv teams was four women and two men, and I was one of the two men. We, were, we performed all the time together, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, wow, we're here with these women. It was like, we're here with these really funny people. It didn't really matter if you were, you know, a man or a woman. Right. Yeah. Funny matters. Well, hopefully the powers that be are listening and they're going to be thinking about it. But, you well, know, I'm I, also... I agree with you. And I, su- I support equality and balance in all we do, of course. I mean, thank you. We, and I, I feel grateful to hear that. I teach the entertainment business school and uh, I'm amazed at how happy I am to have so many women in the class. A lot of uh, comedy writers as well. And, you know, just seeing even in my class balance, the presence of women, the, the ambition of women, the awesome talent of women, it just makes me really happy in an industry where we, we just haven't quite gotten there yet. And speaking of having not quite gotten there yet, you're running for the WGA board right now, correct? Yes, thanks for bringing that up. I am running for the uh, Writers Guild board and the equality issue comes up there too i mean i guess if i look at you know how are we doing overall you know tina fey and amy poehler could certainly point to you know a a huge movement of mindy uh, kaling and amy schumer i mean there are so many and samantha b there are so many funny women out there doing their thing and um i think you're talking more about the institutional shows but i wanted to point out that as i'm running for the board i did get contacted by the South Asian Writers Committee, who's a group of South Asian writers who want to be recognized by the Writers Guild, who's not recognizing them. Really? 
Yes, and the Writers Guild's kind of putting them in a position to be, you know, why don't you go and be in the Asian Writers Group? And I'm kind of paraphrasing here what they were told. Uh, but they reached out to me and said, look, if you get elected, would you support us and would you help our cause? And of course, I, you know, read their letters they wrote to the Guild and I fully understand what the South Asian Writers Committee are asking for. So are we doing better? It's a, it's a never ending battle. You know, mm -hmm. it's constant. And I completely support their group being recognized and not the insulting thing to me. And I see why they're insulted is they were told we'll go into the Asian writers group for a year or something like that. And they didn't want to do that. Mm. And I kind of understand because it kind of defeats the purpose. They're not they're not Asian. They're South Asian. And uh, this group in particular, you know, as they communicated to me, does not consider themselves Asian and, uh, you know, don't want to be put in, the, they want to have their own committee. So, you know, this, it's everywhere and the fight is all over and I'm kind of running on my own set of issues, um, you know, but I, I'm encountering all kinds of groups and meeting like yourself, all kinds of people during this campaign. So interesting. You know, before we dive into your uh, the passions that you have uh, and the platform that you're running on, would you mind for anyone in the audience who doesn't really know how the WGA works and the inside workings of the WGA, would you just give us a little sense of that? Yes. You know, I'll give you my thumbnail, uh, you know, what I know about it. It's, uh, you know, our union is there to uh, protect us in working conditions to make sure that we have fair and reasonable working conditions. That, that's the, ultimately their role, and we pay them for that service. And, um, you know, you there pay, are... You pay them a percentage of what you earn, right? Yes, they calculate quarterly. Based on what you earn, they send you a, a dues slip. And I'm also in Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA. I was in Actors' Equity for many years when I worked at Second City. Uh, I'm in BMI, the Music Writing Union. So I, you know, I've got a few union cards in my wallet, and uh, you know, it's essentially they also can help you with, uh, you know, your working conditions if you want to file a grievance, and they're there to make sure that the contract is being respected and appropriately uh, used and you know executed and all that. And you know, it's my understanding that the WGA is one of the strongest unions in the country. Uh, in terms of the benefits offered its members and um, the support that's there. Do you know how many members there are in the WGA? I think there's a little over 12,000, if I'm, I'm guesstimating here. I think a little over 12,000 members in both East and West, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I, it's, it's shocking to me to hear that they're the strongest union because I've been you know, hearing a lot of complaints in a lot of areas. And just even if you look at the 17 people that are all running, you know, people all have axes to grind. But I'd be curious to see what, what makes them the strongest or why they're considered strong, like stronger than the Teamsters. You know, I don't know. I maybe. But, I don't know uh, if that's compared like within Hollywood or if it's just in general in the United States. There's not a lot of places where you can get a pension anymore outside the government. And I think that that's maybe significant, especially for as I'm talking to the young writers coming in who are like, I want to be a WGA member. You know, it's their it's their dream just to get just to get into the guild. Yes, yes, absolutely. You do want, you know, your pension administered fairly, uh, which, you know, doesn't always happen, in, in my opinion. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, you want, you know, fair pay for fair work. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, there's does, you know, as, as you can see, there's a lot of uh, labor movement in the news in terms of Trader Joe's and Starbucks 
you know, people trying to get contracts going UPS right now as part of the Teamsters are organizing. So, you know, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of successes that the Guild has and that has to be recognized. Um, I just recently signed this letter in support of animation writers that they get better coverage. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's so important. So the Guild's behind that and pushing for that. And Good. Uh, but, you know, the Guild has to, you know, if we're paying dues for something, they have to respond to what the concerns are. And, you know, the reason I'm running is because I don't believe that they are appropriately responding to some of the wrongdoing that's going on. It has been going on for a while. Will you tell us about it? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I've been basically the show captain, as you mentioned in the intro, for Key and Peel since 2013. And officially the role, uh, I guess, as far as the Guild is concerned, the role of show captain isn't really one that they use too much after the show's out of production. But we've had so many payment issues over the years. And, you know, there's a lot of tentacles to what's going on with our personal situation as writers and then also comedy writers in general are suffering under a lot of the same ways i want i don't want to bog down with too much technical information but basically there's a couple of areas that are of most interest to me and i want to get these conversations started at the guild the over promotion of the show because the contract allows the studio viacom or comedy central uh, or nbc if it's snl uh, the Writers Guild contract allows the producers to take promotional clips of the show to put them online to kind of advertise the show. And the problem is you consume a sketch comedy show differently than you would consume a sitcom or a drama. So a promo clip from a sitcom or a drama would entice you to watch the full episode or season, you know, which you'd have to theoretically pay for. And while a sketch show clip just entices you to watch more sketches, which are currently available all for free. And we've argued since 2013 that five to 10 clips per season should be sufficient for, you know, to get an audience to buy, to entice them to buy. And the Guild originally backed us on this, but since then they kind of ignored these violations. And just to give you some perspective, Key and Peele only has 298 sketches in total. That's all five seasons of our show, okay. 298 sketches. As of December 2020, just on YouTube, there were over 350 promotional uploads. Now, these are full sketch uploads. Um, full sketch? Full sketch, not, not a clip, the full sketch. And many of these uploads, there's like over 30 compilations, well over 30, because now these numbers are from 2020. It's gone way up since then. Mm. And these compilations also include bundles of Key and Peele sketches. And some of these are reaching the length of full episodes, 20, 30 minutes each, these bundles. And this, there's current uploads now in the last year that exceed 7, 8, and 12 hours. So these are supposed to be five minutes or less clips that promote the show, but they're, they're way over promoting, they're way uploading, way too much. And this doesn't count Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and these other platforms where we have hundreds of millions of these promotional streams. And that's, you know, the, they're, over, they're uploading, you know, not only too many clips, but too many. And then there's also a ton of violations of the five-minute rule. And then the other area is that we've been uploaded to an archival site since 2016. And archival, according to our contract, is not promotional. And we've never been paid uh, appropriately on that format either. And, uh, you know, it, when we're on Comedy Central's website, cc.com, 
we know that you know research shows and i have you know articles that i've looked this up and the numbers probably have one up since i've looked this up but they charge more to advertisers on their own platform than they did when we were even on television so the problem is we were hired to write a tv show and if that tv show is sold or watched or viewed or clicked on we should get residuals for it absolutely but now you know we weren't hired to write this endless web show masquerading as promotion for the tv show and that's what it is they're saying well this is all promotional and they've just gone crazy so they've done it not only with our show but i also after we had kind of a you know a watershed moment where a lot of shows were put together and we were going into an arbitration but the guild took a ridiculously low settlement and didn't factor in all of these overpromotion, which is happening to pretty much every show. And this also affects Screen Actors Guild actors too. I talked oh, to. Oh wow! I was looking at the list on your website of all the shows affected. I mean, just like a hundred shows. Well, I think that in in one case that we had, there were about fifty shows. But these are, you know, you're from The Office to Amy Schumer to Nick Kroll at Midnight, Tosh Poino, Daily Show, John Stewart, Daily Show, Trevor Noah, Futurama, Workaholics, Key and Peele. Broad City. I mean, huge, huge shows, all the roasts, a lot of the roasts, I should say. So these are all shows that have suffered similarly. So if you go to Tosh.0 and you look at their top 25 uploads on YouTube, you know, something like 24 of them all break the five minute rule. And I talked to a Letterman writer who was telling me that, you know, years ago, 2008 and nine, they were, CBS was just putting up any and all clips they could that were four minutes and 59 seconds long. That's so fucked. Right. So they, well, yes, I mean, we'll keep it uh, clean here. But yes, the uh, it is aft, as you say. And, uh, you know, that they were kind of, you know, butchering the shows just to get four minutes and 59 seconds worth of content. But for some reason, they've completely thrown this five minute rule out. And the Guild is not supporting us on this. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get them to acknowledge that and and to help us. So it mostly it's just a matter of bandwidth. I mean, I would imagine that everybody in there cares. Well, I don't know. I don't know. The, I don't know if that's the issue or not. And um, but, you know, the guild has pretty much shuttered their doors on the conversation, you know, and we have no transparency when it comes to our general regular payments. And uh, there's a longer history here. And on my campaign website, I'm not sure if you're going to link to the campaign website, but we I kinda, can absolutely. So folks can okay. look in the show notes for that. Yeah. Thank you, team, for checking that out, because that explains kind of you know, a timeline from 2013 till today, like why I'm actually running now. This has been 10 years, pretty much. We've been fighting this. So um, it's a much longer story, but just for ease of use, as far as our interview today, Kaya, I just wanted to talk mostly about the overpromotion. Which yeah, which is, is helpful for us to understand. You know, it's not something well, that we would just automatically know. And I, I was glad to discover um, your platform and understand that this is really an issue because I didn't know until I encountered you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, most people don't. And uh, most writers don't. That's the other thing. A lot of writers oh gosh. don't understand. And a lot of the writers I contacted after this low settlement we got, <laughs> I was trying to reach out to some of the key writers from some of those shows. 
And pretty much across the board, I interviewed them, I sent them questionnaires. People didn't even know there was an arbitration going on, that they had a chance to bring some grievances forward. So there's a lot of like lack of organization. And really that's what the union should be doing is organizing these grievances together. And um, some things are, the, the, you know, the ship has probably sailed. We probably lost a lot of money and won't ever get that back. Mm. Going forward, over promotion, they're uploading too many clips. And also they seem to completely be ignoring the five minute rule and we need to be compensated for those uploads because it, it zaps our compensable markets. So markets where we should be getting paid, nobody's paying to buy the show. Why would they? You can see the whole thing for free by just sitting on YouTube. Uh, the YouTube channel even says this is the place to watch sketches. It's not saying this is a place where you can view a few clips and decide whether or not you want to buy. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that just sounds like a violation. It's, it does to me, too. And... Um, you know, we, we need the guild to engage in it. I spent the first half of this year, once a month, writing letters to our new guild president and the board and basically asking them to give me five minutes at a board meeting so I could present a report that I wrote, which is over 100 pages long, that explains everything that happened to us with Viacom and how it looks like they've been screwing us over because they have been. Mm. And uh, the guild has not de denied my request to appear at a board meeting for even five minutes. They denied my request to digest the report. So this is really my plan C and we'll see what plan D is if I don't make the uh, cut here. You know, there's 17 people running for eight board seats. So I'm hoping I can get into the top eight. And uh, I've been trying to get some, you know, comedy writers behind me and I've had some decent support. And, uh, you know, this interview today is hopefully a chance to get more information out there. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, talk, is there anything where you can tell us about your platform, what you care about, uh, what you really want to do when you're on the board? Well, it's a great question. And I'm not even that familiar with, you know, what my options would be once I'm on the board. I've never been on a board. And, um, you know, I'm doing this mostly to get the information out, mostly so that people can see what's happening. And once I'm there, look, I'm pretty guild i'm a happy guild person uh i like as you mentioned in the intro i was been a show captain a couple of times and that person is kind of the conduit between the writer's room and the guild and the studio so i served that role a few times i was a strike captain during the 2007-8 writer's strike i made interviews on the street with different writers including matthew weiner that's on my campaign site too so you can see i've been you know involved with the guild and very pro guild um, you know, my family, were all union people, and it's important to me, too. So uh, I'm willing to do any and every good cause to help writers. Uh, but c comedy writers are not being uh, treated fairly right now. And um, the, the bigger thing is that not a lot of people know it or want to engage with it or want to talk about it. So that that's that's what I'm passionate about is trying to help comedy writers. But I also would help our South uh, Asian writing committee. You know, I would very much try to help them get recognized by the guild and any other causes. I see there, you know, anything else that I can do to help animation, you know, if I can lend my support to anything, I would, I would help try to make writers lives better. Let's talk for a second, a little bit more about the animation writers. I have a couple of friends who are animation writers, showrunner Eric Rogers, who I just adore. Um, and I know that they're not really under the writers guild, right? Aren't they under IOTC? That's a great question. And I am not 
I'm not an animation writer. I've never been. I know they operate under something called TAG, which is some lower form of payment, but I'm not the person to give you – you do better to, you know – we could do, we do better to Google it and find out because I I just don't want to say the wrong things. I've been so steeped for the last ten years in these comedy writer concerns that right. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not the the person to get quotes from. On, uh, That's interesting too because the it, it just sounds like these lanes and I notice this about the entertainment business everywhere. The entertainment business is so siloed. You know you you're in a lane. And you don't necessarily know what's happening in the lane right next to you because you're so super focused on your lane. And it sounds like your lane is comedy writing and comedy writers and what's happening for the comedy writers. Of course, but I have sympathy for all writers and would help all of them. But if you're asking me specifically, like, what are the inner workings of how the animation writers aren't succeeding? I don't have that at my fingertips. Uh, you know, I'm not here to really talk about that, but I would certainly help with that. And you're right, though, we are siloed. And uh, in terms of even the fact that we have a, a Writers Guild East and a Writers Guild West, because a lot of the issues I'm dealing with affect a ton of East shows. Oh, okay. And, you know, Writers Guild East members can't endorse or vote for me, even though I'm fighting for them. And Wait a minute, really? Because you're running for the WGA West? Yeah, that's they're all separate. So the writers I didn't Guild know that. Right. So those. So even that. And as corporations get bigger and bigger and bigger, now there are only six companies that run everything, you know, they keep conglomerating and getting bigger and we keep being kept apart. So even to the fact that a lot of times when we sit down at the negotiating table, we hear, oh, well, the DGA already did their contract and we have to agree to that because they've already taken this position so we can't contradict them. And that's ridiculous to me. I also think we should be able to work with all creative, all creative uh, unions should be able to bargain together because otherwise how do you compete with these behemoth companies that keep growing and growing and growing and we keep staying separated i mean right absolutely it's got to be a combined effort to be more powerful i i agree i agree so i i i don't like that we're being divided and conquered i would love to be able to help every single writer that feels they're not uh, being paid fairly or compensated fairly for reuse um, which is, you know, just to also, you know, I don't want listeners to be like, oh, man, royalties, they're complaining they're not getting enough royalties. But royalties are part of the equation because it keeps things fair, especially if your work, you know, when we were on TV, we got two million views a week. Uh, we could probably get two million views in a day because of the amount of uploads and we're on all these platforms. And, uh, you know, we have right now on YouTube probably over 5 billion hits just on YouTube alone. Forget, wow. forget any other platform. So, you know, we, those royalties should be much higher to reflect the performance of the show. And 48% of writers, and this statistic is an old one, so it might have been changed, but in, during the strike, we knew that 48% of writers were out of work at any given time. So that means people are developing, they're pitching, they're trying to get a new agent, or they're trying to get into a new writer's room. So these royalty payments, especially if your show is performing well, have to be equitable. And if they're not, then that's that's a problem. Uh, these aren't these aren't a royalty. You know, I'm sorry. These aren't a luxury. These uh, royalties are, uh, you know, the lifeblood for writers and their families. And most Absolutely. most of them are, the majority of writers are blue collar writers. Absolutely. It's not like you know everybody is, um, you know, Shonda Rhimes. You know, everybody there are. That's the, there's a top one or 2% of writers, but most writers are working class people that drive Toyota Corollas, have families and have mortgages and need uh, residuals because resi residuals go to heirs and heirs of heirs. 
So their, their families are losing too. When, when right, so it gets passed down through the generations. Yeah, absolutely. And when you reference mortgages, and that's a best case scenario, the cost of living in Los Angeles has gone up so much. Uh, I know writers, you know, who are staffed and working who are like, oh my God, the cost of my studio in LA is killing me. It's just so expensive to live in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, well, daycare in LA, crazy. <laughs> Traffic, daycare. Okay. No, everything, everything. I grew up in LA and I, I left on, uh, admittedly when I uh, got pregnant and had my son. I was like, you know, North County, San Diego is awfully nice. And it's only a stone's throw from Los Angeles when I need to go up for meetings. So uh, I think I'm going to learn how to surf and raise my kid in a different environment. <laughs> that's, um, that's the dream. And look, there is a lot of opportunity, especially with remote writers rooms that writers could write from anywhere they like. And uh, I agree. I've been on the road for a few months myself, kind of traveling and teaching. And uh, what are you teaching? Improv and sketch comedy. If anybody wants to learn more about that, they can you know, contact me through my website, but I do teach, uh, I've been teaching since 1995, uh, comedy writing and uh, improvisation. And sometimes I teach like live at a theater. I taught in Nashville and New Orleans. Oh, I love that. All over this uh, summer. And, um, you know, so you have, an, a, you have a, an affection for students too. I do as well as a teacher. It's, it's like my great joy in this life. Absolutely. I mean, not only do I learn from them, I also love, you know, watching them catch fish. I love watching them having figured something out. I give a lot of technique for improvisers and for comedy writers. And it's really fun to watch them, you know, have tools to place their ideas in uh, useful ways. That's so great. I love that. What are you writing right now? Right now I'm writing a spec script. And I've rented a Airbnb at a horse farm in downstate New York. And I'm working on that right now. Oh, I love that. That's so awesome. So you're a writer who can write in seclusion. Absolutely. I, I don't like writing in a coffee shop, although I will do it from time to time. But every time the door opens, I, I look up. I'm like, well, who's coming in here now? And look at that handbag. And what's that guy's hat say? Like, I get too distracted. So I like being uh, in a peaceful nature filled setting so great i am like your exact opposite i can edit in a peaceful nature filled setting but in order to create i i need total chaos and the more loud noise and busyness like the better it just focuses me it's so wild yeah well you know different strokes i know that like neil different simon jokes. Would, neil simon would say you have to get up every day and write three pages and i was always like well screw you neil simon like uh <laughs> That works. That works for you, but you know Hunter exactly. Thompson. Hunter Thompson might get up at two p.m., drink a fifth of vodka, eat a whole chicken, and then write for ten hours. So there you go. Everybody's got their own process. And everybody's got their own process about figuring out yours. Well, is there any final thoughts that you'd like to add to everything that we've talked about today, Rich? Well, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to hopefully try to get the word out to comedy fans, comedy writers, actors, you know, people that are fans of Key and Peele and these other comedy shows we talked about. We really need people's support to make the change because uh, it's gone on for a long time. And this really is, a, is kind of a key moment because I don't know of any other candidate that's running on these ideas. And maybe I missed something, but I think I'm the only one running on these particular ideas. And it's really something that will doom all comedy writers from now on because we'll never get a fair residual if we're always being able to you know, have our entire show uploaded five minutes at a time where you can see the whole thing. And now they don't even you know, respect that. So you know, my hope is that we're getting the word out and I really appreciate your support, Kaya, and uh, 
you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about it. So I, I'm just very grateful. Thank you. You got it, Rich. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Really appreciate your time. Everybody remember to check the show notes. Rich, uh, give us the websites just spoken out loud for a moment in case anybody wants to find it that way. Sure. HTTPS colon backslash backslash. I think those are backslashes. Elections.wga.org slash 2022 slash rich hyphen Tallarico. And um, richtellerico.com is my website. And, um, you know, hopefully people will find out. Maybe I'll try to get something on my website about the election. Right now, I don't know if there's anything on there. But if you put it in your notes, people should be able to find us. Fantastic. Well, I hope to take a class from you someday. It was so great to meet you today. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds great. And likewise, Kaya, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report How to Pitch Anything in One Minute at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com Thank you.